Ohio Habla es un podcast que nace del proyecto Narrativas Orales de Latinos en Ohio, Oral Narratives of Latinos en Ohio. Exploramos la experiencia latina con entrevistas en español, inglés y spanglish. Welcome to Ohio Habla. I'm Elena Fallis, and I'm excited to talk to Professor Nelson Flores today. Nelson Flores is an, an associate professor of educational linguistics at the University of Pennsylvania. His research examines the intersections of language and race and bilingual education with the goal of promoting more equitable programs for language-minoritized students. Nelson, bienvenido a nuestro episodio sobre este tema tan importante del bilingüismo. Gracias. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you grow up? So I was born and raised in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, my mother is from Puerto Rico. My father was from Ecuador. They met in New York and then moved to Philadelphia before I was born. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I grew up in Philadelphia. I lived in New York for like 10 years as an adult, and now I'm back in Philadelphia. So that's kind of <laughs> a little bit about like where I come from. I don't know if you have wanted to know other stuff. No, no, that's good. That's good. Uh, did you grow up bilingual? And, and what was this experience like with both parents, I assume, um, Spanish speakers? Well, that's an interesting question. Mm -hmm. um, so both of my parents, at least by the time I was born, um, were bilingual. They spoke English and Spanish. So mm -hmm. my mother came to the States when she was around 11 or 12. So she went to school here. Um, my father came when he was like 17 or 18. So he came to work. So his English, um, he was always more comfortable in Spanish than English. And with one another, they would primarily use Spanish. Mm -hmm. um, but as children, oftentimes we would respond in English. Right. Um, so I understood everything that my parents would say in English and Spanish or the mix or whatever they were doing. Mm -hmm. um, and typically I would respond in English. Um, Now, some people would say, well, that's not bilingual because you're just receptive. I would argue that that is a form of bilingualism mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. actually a very common form of bilingualism for second generation right. um, Latinos and other immigrants, um, children of immigrants. Um, I did eventually become productive in Spanish by studying it in school, by traveling. But I think those receptive skills really helped me mm -hmm. to develop The, those productive skills. And I think they're kind of a resource that I find many Latino children have um, when they come to school, even if they don't necessarily speak Spanish, oftentimes they have some receptive understanding um, that oftentimes goes unrecognized. Um, so that's kind of my long answer to whether I grew up bilingual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. Um, you are very active on Twitter. And in fact, that's where I met you <laughs> virtually, um, where you often discuss issues of inclusion and equity in language and the pervasiveness of racist attitudes towards non-dominant languages and the people that represent them, and in many cases, people of color. I'm interested in particular on how this affects Spanish speakers and, bil and bilingual education. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, sure. Um, and I think, well, first, just a kind of side note on Twitter, most of the people that I know nowadays seem to <laughs> know me on Twitter right. and have met me on Twitter. And then I connect with them in real life, which really shows the power, mm -hmm. I think, of social media really kind of promoting these important conversations mm -hmm. um, and bringing together people who are like-minded and kind of trying to think through these things. But I'm um, kind of now to get to the real question. Um, I think that in the United States, um, 
for bilingualism is framed typically as a challenge to overcome mm-hmm. when we're talking about low-income communities of color mm-hmm. and an asset or something worth celebrating when we're talking about middle-class professional, right. primarily but not always white um, mm-hmm. communities. Um, and so I think that's the fundamental challenge of trying to promote bilingual education in the United States is specifically that bilingual education is oftentimes seen as an enrichment mm-hmm. for white middle class students and perhaps some kind of middle class professionals of color and their children, um, but is seen as something that's actually a challenge that needs to be fixed in some mm-hmm. ways or overcome in some ways in when we're talking about low-income children of color, in particular Latinos, but also other immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that if we're really um, invested in promoting bilingualism and bilingual education, then we really have to confront that racial dynamic um, so that we can really begin to see how these programs can promote bilingualism, not just for students who are already relatively privileged, but for students who are actually coming into the school with those skills already, mm-hmm. um, but who are not being recognized and valued because of the social status of them and their families. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Nelson, can you talk to us a little bit about um, the seal of biliteracy in the Philadelphia School District and how that works with uh, with bilingual education? Right. So the seal of biliteracy is kind of something that some districts are doing and some states are doing. Um, that's an initiative that's meant to value biliteracy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so it's meant as a seal that's put on a high school diploma that indicates and celebrates that someone is graduating able to speak, read, and write in English and a language other than English. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that there's a great possibility for great work to be done with such an initiative. I think it's a great way of districts and states showing that they value biliteracy, that it's something that they want to do. Um, but I think that it can't be seen as an end in and of itself, right? Mm-hmm. So it's great for states and districts to say, we're going to put a seal on your diploma if you're biliterate. Um, but I think the important follow-up question that states and districts, I think, are starting to think about and need to keep thinking about is, okay, so what are we doing as districts and as states to actually promote mm-hmm. biliteracy? And what are we doing as districts and states to build on the bilingual skills of many mm-hmm. of the students that are being served in our communities? And so I worry that unless we have really serious conversations about how we're supporting all of our students to develop those biliteracy skills, um, that I worry the same, that the same dynamic that I was kind of cautioning about with bilingual education mm-hmm. in general could possibly be reproduced with the sale of biliteracy, where it's the students who are already relatively privileged, mm-hmm. who have the opportunities to take foreign language classes, AP classes, because their schools actually offer them, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. who then get the seal of biliteracy, and then the students who have learned um, to read and write in their native language at home through their families and didn't necessarily have the opportunity to have that instruction in school, that bi- those biliteracy skills 
are ignored mm-hmm. or erased. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we really need to have a serious conversation about what we mean by biliteracy and how we're going to acknowledge the different types of biliteracy that may exist in communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk to us about um, the Philadelphia Bilingual Education Project, especially with the things that you just mentioned about um, checking the privilege, right? And and, and who um, has access to this? So I'm tell I'm I'm thinking uh, specifically about maybe findings or research um, that you're doing or or, uh, or are doing with um, schools that are predominantly Latin uh, Latina or Latino. Right. So, I mean, there's a, a kind of a lot of different ways that I can answer that, but kind of just a short answer is that so I'm in that project, we're looking at the historical context mm-hmm. of the development of bilingual education in Philadelphia and also the contemporary context. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we have found um, is that in the early days of bilingual education in the post kind of bilingual education act, which was passed in 1968, um, Philadelphia was actually considered one of the pioneering districts in terms of bilingual education. So it received one of the first Bilingual Education Act um, funds mm-hmm. um, and developed what were considered at the time innovative bilingual education programs. Um, but once that funding went away, those programs pretty much went away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and there wasn't kind of a sustained focus on developing those programs at the local level and kind of trying to find funds at the local levels to continue to support those programs. Um, And what happened was that there were community organizations interested in bilingual education, ASPEDA of Pennsylvania being one of them, um, who worked with the district for many, many years um, to try to strengthen the bilingual education program, to try to expand the bilingual education programs, and didn't really make a lot of progress. And so what happened, and this is kind of something that we're interested in looking at further, is with the passage of the charter school legislation in 1997, I believe, in Pennsylvania, ASPEDA and some of these other organizations decided to create charter schools that um, promote bilingual education Mm -hmm. um, as as an alternative to kind of the work that they had been trying to do with the district for a long time. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm very interested in kind of thinking critically about the role of charter schools um, and thinking about kind of the complexities of the -the on-the-ground activism around charter schools. Um, So, like, if we look at the structural challenges, in Philadelphia in particular, um, where one-third of students are in charter schools, um, that has a huge impact on the resources that are available to the students that are in the traditional public schools still. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, if we're looking at it from the perspective of a community organization that's been trying to promote bilingual education in the district for many, many years and hadn't been able to make traction, um, then you can kind of like look at it from that perspective and say, well, maybe the charter school is serving an important niche in that community. So I work with one of the charter schools, not in a SPEDA school, um, another one, and I'm not going to say the name of the organization because it's research, so it has to be confidential. Mm -hmm. Um, But um, And what we're interested there, looking at the -the on-the-ground kind of work in that school, is just the fact that it really is not a school that fits the existing models of um, dual language bilingual education. So mm-hmm. uh, when we talk about dual language bilingual education, we usually are talking about either um, 
two-way programs, which are the ones that get the most attention in the media and kind of in, even in the scholarship and the, in the field. Mm-hmm. And those are programs that bring together who are people who are considered native English speakers, um, oftentimes more affluent, more white. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, quote, native Spanish speakers or native speakers of any other language. But just for this purpose, since I'm working in an uh, English-Spanish school, um, I'll just use Spanish. Um, And oftentimes those native Spanish speakers are low-income immigrant communities. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, this school that I work with, and actually all of the schools in Philadelphia that have, um, most of the schools in Philadelphia that have dual-language programs and many programs in, in New York that I worked with, are not quite two-way programs. Um, but then the other model is a one-way program. And one-way programs can be, this is, can, be, can be one-way either way, right? So it can be only native English speakers or only native Spanish speakers. Mm-hmm. And that would be a one-way program. Um, but many of the students in this school and in the existing community in the other schools in that neighborhood are students who oftentimes are coming in with some competencies and experiences in both languages. Um, But many of them, because they're growing up in the United States, because many of them are kind of third generation or even more than that at this point in the United States, um, are much more comfortable in English, Mm -hmm. but have some receptive skills in Spanish, just like I did as a kid, or even use Spanish at some points in their lives with some of the elders in their lives. Um, And so oftentimes, the school would like to describe itself as a two-way school, but it's like, but there's not really half native English speaker, half native Spanish speaker. Um, but then when they say, well, are we a one-way school? And I'm like, well, the students aren't all native Spanish speakers and they're not all native English speakers either. Uh, mm-hmm. They're much more um, complex in the bilingualisms that they have. Um, and there really isn't a lot of scholarship um, or even attention to those types of programs, primarily because they're in low-income segregated communities. Mm. Um, and so there just isn't a lot of attention that's given to those types of programs. But I have had many experiences with those types of programs, and I'm really interested in understanding the ways that the principles of a two-way program or a one-way program need to be modified mm. to build on the bilingualism of the existing students in that program. So I think oftentimes we want to fit, we as a society or as like educational scholars, want to fit students into boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Like we don't want to fit students into a program model. We want to develop program models around the students who are actually in our classrooms. And I don't think that we really have clear program models for that type of community. And I'm interested in thinking with the school and with the teachers about what that might look like. Right, right. Um, So you just said that, uh, so it's not statewide, it's not a statewide or even a citywide uh, bilingual education program that exists right now in, in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania. And I wanted to ask, how can we, and and I was thinking about Ohio in particular, but I, it sounds like maybe many states like Ohio and, and maybe others in the Midwest, how can we equip educators in the states uh, where bilingual education is not part of the curriculum? How do we ensure that there are equitable practices that support in what who you're, the student body that you're talking about is primarily, I would say, heritage learners, language learners, right? Mm-hmm. Um, growing up bilingual, 
uh, in some way uh, and talk about this unique background as valuable, like you mentioned earlier, and not something that needs to be fixed or remedy. So how do, how do we equip educators um, to serve this community? Right. So I think that uh, a common misconception that people have is that um, if I, as an educator, don't speak the native languages of my students or their or their families, that there's no way for me as an educator to actually um, build on those skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's um, a misconception because for me, treating language as a resource is really a stance towards teaching. That's mm-hmm. that's not that's not connected to what your actual language proficiencies may be. Um, and so, if we take language as a resource in our classrooms, that really changes the ways that we approach our students and their previous linguistic experience. And so, a concrete example that I can give that I oftentimes give to teachers is. Um, when we talk about, um, when we look at like the common core standards or really any state standards at this point, they're oftentimes very similar in a lot of ways. One of the, one of the ways that the standards want students to develop as writers is through understanding audience mm-hmm. um, and understanding how audience impacts the language choices that you make or the language choices that an author would make. Um, and I tell teachers, our Children already know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, all children know how to do that. Um, but our children who are growing up in a context where they're literally using two different named languages mm-hmm. um, have a very concrete way of understanding the ways that language um, connects to particular audiences. So, mm-hmm. like, our children oftentimes will know when I'm speaking to Abuelita, mm-hmm. I have to use Spanish with her, and I also have to use usted with her, mm-hmm. um, because that's the way I speak to Abuela, because I need to respect her and I need to use the language that she understands. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a clear understanding of language connected to audience. Um, now, they also know when I'm speaking to my friends um, who don't know Spanish, or my teachers, for that matter, who don't know Spanish, then I have to use English. But I'm going to speak to my teacher in a more formal way than I'm going to speak to my friends. Right? Mm-hmm. Children already have a sense of that because they've been socialized into these ways of using language. And I think teachers could really build on that knowledge in their classroom. So if you're doing a lesson that's focusing on audience, um, why not start with the audiences that the children are already familiar with and think about how do you speak to your abuela um, and how is that different than how you speak to your amigo um, mm-hmm. And how are they the same, right? So, so, so I think starting with that knowledge that the students has then allows them to see, oh, wait, so what you're asking me to do as an author, I already do. Now it's just a matter of thinking about how I do that for new audiences that may be more unfamiliar to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's rather than treating home and school as dichotomies in the ways that oftentimes they're talked about, um, even with the distinction of like academic language versus social language and all of these um, dichotomous ways of thinking about um, the language practices of our children, I think really does a disservice to the fact that they already have the knowledge 
um, that the Common Core and other state standards are asking for them to be able to um, do. Um, and it's, ju it's just a matter of helping them to transfer those skills to new contexts that may be less familiar to them, which I think is the primary function of school, right, is to kind of introduce them to new audiences, new ways of thinking about things. Um, but I think we can do that in ways that already built that builds on the knowledge that they already have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I agree with you with uh, uh, children already un having an understanding of audience and, and who to talk to um, in what way and in what language. Uh, but I wanted to sort of push that a little bit more because in my experience, we're sending two different messages, even in bilingual classrooms, per se, mm -hmm. uh, that we want them to be bilingual, right? But anything official is in English. Right. Um, for example, testing, right? So how much um, of this bilingualism will be tested, right? And in, in, in state testing, for example. Um, and I know that this is something that has been discussed for many years. This is not, you know, me coming up with this question. It's been, um, it, you know, it's, it's been in discussions in, in different states and, and um, you know, diff in, in different dec decades for different reasons, too. Um, but I wanted your opinion on how this affects or farther marginalizes languages other than English in, the edu right. in our educational system. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So as you kind of were alluding to, there's um, a robust scholarship on um, the negative impact that English-only testing has mm -hmm. on um, bilingual education programs. And so I'm thinking about, um, in particular, the work of uh, Kate Menken and Christian Solorza and... Um, New York City, um, where they found that the push for English-only testing actually led um, many school leaders to discontinue their bilingual education programs. Mm. Now, mind you, this contradicts the research evidence that shows that when we look at children over the long term, that bilingual programs are actually much more effective. But the problem that many administrators have is, one, they don't necessarily have that expertise because they don't have the training mm -hmm. in um, working with um, bilingual communities. Um, but two, they're being held accountable for how the students are doing now, right? Not how they're doing in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so many of the elementary schools are under pressure for their students to perform well on English tests and kind of make the decision that's not supported by research that if you put them in English only, that that means that they're going to end up doing better. Um, and so I think that this kind of emphasis on English only high stakes testing um, really does work to oftentimes undermine um, the work of bilingual educators, but also oftentimes leads to the undermining of the programs in general. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, but another dimension to it that I think isn't talked about as much, and I think this is especially relevant for the types of communities that I was describing before, kind of low-income, multiple, multiple generations of Latinos living in one community, mm -hmm. um, is um, the ways that Spanish assessment oftentimes can also be a way of marginalizing the students. And so just to give you a concrete example, um, in many dual language programs that I have worked with, um, they use the um, DRA and the EDL to assess students' um, reading le levels. Um, but there's a, an open question about whether, when you're giving the students the assessment in Spanish, for example, if you're assessing them in Spanish, should you require the response to be only in Spanish. Mm. Um, and there's kind of contention and controversy in the field about what the correct answer to that question is. Um, 
And so, like, I think the question comes, well, if you're focusing on comprehension, mm. right, if you are interested in whether they comprehended um, the text, which is ultimately what reading something is about, um, then if they're able to accurately answer the questions in English, that would seem to suggest that you would allow them to use English in order to assess their comprehension. But the other side of the argument is, well, but we also want to develop the Spanish skills um, of students who are coming from homes where English is the primary language. Um, and so I think that that's kind of a complexity around assessment in Spanish that hasn't really been figured out mm. and kind of talked about and, and, and thinking about like what that looks like in different community contexts, like what that would look like in a two-way program versus a one-way program versus these other programs that don't fit. It may, lo it, it may mean that we would want different assessment practices in those different types of programs. Um, but because there's very little research on that particular question, I think oftentimes schools are left to their own kind of intuition about what makes the most sense, which I think can lead to good decisions because they know the children mm -hmm. and they know what they need. But I think it would be helpful to them if we had more research on like what, what types of assessment practices in Spanish um, we should be considering um, based on the needs of the children. Mm -hmm, of course. Um, so since we're, we're uh, talking um, about Spanish, for example, and as a, as a, in a classroom that might be bilingual, um, I wanted to know how this, you know, this discussion about the different programs uh, programs that exist in in um, in different states or different school districts. How does this affect um, Spanish in the U.S.? I mean, we often witness uh, negative language attitudes towards Latinas and Latinos, and sometimes many times uh, from our own community. Uh, based on proficiencies and regional variants, how can we shift attitudes that praise second language learners uh, who, as you mentioned, are primarily middle class and white um, mm -hmm. and punish heritage language learners um, in our society or in even in our uh, language classrooms or in our, you know, K through 12 uh, system? How do, how do we address that? Right. Yeah, that's a big question. Um, and I think that there are multiple levels um, to the answer. Um, I think that at the broadest level, what the way to address that issue is to address the underlying issues of racial inequity that permeate the society, right? And that would mean thinking about how we develop comprehensive public policy that provides the support to communities of color, to low-income communities that they need in order to be able to thrive um, in, in order to raise their social status within the broader society, right? So I think that on one level, I think it's important for us to recognize that schools in and of themselves cannot resolve those underlying issues, right? Those underlying issues are not produced primarily by school, although they're oftentimes exacerbated mm -hmm. by schools, um, but that we need to have a broader conversation um, about how we address those underlying racial inequities and how we address multiple generations of racial discrimination and the impacts of that on contemporary society. Now, that is not something that teachers in classrooms can do anything about, but mm -hmm. there are things that teachers in classrooms can do things about, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think when I'm speaking to educators, I would say, I would encourage them to focus on their locus of control, right? Like you can't control um, the fact that we live in a society 
that for multiple generations of um, racial discrimination have, have produced particular racial inequities that we struggle with today, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, conti- that, that we continue to produce policies that exacerbate those racial inequities. Um, but teachers and classrooms can really think about how can they provide spaces to um, help children to value not only their own language proficiencies and competencies, but how they value and celebrate language diversity in general, right? And I think that was part of what your question was getting at, mm-hmm. um, is part of how we get people to appreciate their own language practices is by getting them to appreciate other people's language practices too, right? And, and to realize that we all have linguistic expertise. Um, we all kind of do innovative things with language. Um, and I think really shifting the focus of the classroom away from what I call a language policing mindset, which <laughs> yeah. is trying to kind of fix the language practices of the students and monitoring them and constantly getting them to correct themselves to um, what I call like a language exploration perspective, where we're supporting children in exploring just how interesting language is, right? Like when you look closely at what people do with language on a daily basis, um, it's just a really creative tool um, that people do all kinds of interesting things with. And published authors are published authors precisely because they understand that language is a fun tool that you can manipulate to develop particular effects um, and to kind of get a particular um, feel. And so if we want our children to become successful authors or users of language in general, um, then I think we have to help them to see um, that that language isn't something that controls them, or it shouldn't be something that controls them. It shouldn't be a set of rules that they're expected to follow, but it's rather a tool that they control, right, and that they can use in ways that reflect who they are and their... um, unique experiences with the world um, and, and they can think about how um, they can re- re- reflect that unique experience in the world through the language choices that they make in their writing and in their speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that type of mindset shift is something that teachers in classrooms can do that would help to at least denaturalize these hierarchies and get children to think more critically about them while providing them a space for meeting the standards, which is, of course, what teachers are primarily focused on, mm-hmm. right? Um, but if we want students to understand author's craft, then we have to help them to actually understand author's craft, right? Which is not just following a set of rules that someone gave you. Authors right. don't do that. Like, that's not why people get published, right? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you, you are, you have been working with the Center on Standards, Alignment, Instruction, and Learning. Um, mm-hmm. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about um, the work that you do there, um, the implementation of college and career ready standards for ELLs mm-hmm. or English uh, language learners. Yeah. Yes. So I am primarily, I mean, my role on the project is primarily to help them think through how they're going to study the impacts of state standards on students who are officially designated as English language learners. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I've been doing as part of that work is, one, um, looking at the historical development 
of um, what I call um, ELL accountability policies, um, which are have a different kind of genealogy than what we typically identify as the general accountability systems. Um, and so when we think of um, general accountability systems and general standards, people usually think of a nation at risk. And they say, okay, a nation at risk kind of indicted the school system, and then people decided, let's raise standards for all children. Mm. Um, and that that trajectory certainly has impacted English language learners. But when we look at ELL accountability policies, which are focusing on English language development specifically, they actually pre-exist um, a nation at risk. They actually come out of the Bilingual Education Act, um, where programs who've received funding from the federal government to support bilingual education had to develop accountability systems that showed that the students were developing their English language skills, which is primarily what the Bilingual Education Act was focused on, despite the name. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I know. There's but... a lot of programs like that. It's, <laughs> I, it's my pet peeve when they say, oh, bilingual uh, school. I'm like, no, your focus is to get them to speak, to become monolinguals in some way. <laughs> right. I mean, we could have a whole podcast just on right. my thoughts on the Bilingual Education right. Act. But, um, <laughs> but when we look at those kind of accountability policies, um, They've become much more specific um, oh, since the 1960s. So the 1960s, 1970s, essentially districts were um, free to kind of identify students as English language learners using whatever assessments they wanted to use. Mm. Um, and typically, they were using assessments um, that were fairly simple in terms of just assessing students' abilities to communicate in English. Now, by the by the 80s, um, you kind of get this push towards developing assessments that are assessing what some scholars refer to as academic language, right? Um, and so the tests become increasingly more difficult. Um, and then by the by by No Child Left Behind, you then get assessments that are basically assessments that are not assessing students' English language proficiency in a straightforward way, but rather are assessing whether students are able to engage with grade-level content in English. And Mm -hmm. so you have the expectation that students will be able to engage with grade-level content in English before they exit or before they're reclassified as non-English language learners. Mm. Um, And so that's kind of an interesting kind of historical trajectory um, that I think it's important to keep in mind um, because I think when people talk about English language learners, at least people who are not kind of in education, they have a a particular conception of what that means. They're assuming children who are new to the country, Mm. who aren't able to kind of communicate well in English, but many English learners um, are actually able to communicate in English quite well and maybe even feel more comfortable communicating in English than in their native language, mm-hmm. um, but struggle to be reclassified because um, they, are in, they are in schools that are under-resourced, that are high-poverty schools, um, where many of the children are not, are not performing at what are considered grade-level standards. Um, and so they also are not performing at grade-level standards. Mm-hmm. But it may not be because they don't know English. Right. It may be because they're at a school that needs a lot of other support in a community mm-hmm. that needs a lot of other supports. Um, so that's kind of part of what I'm looking at with the um, C-Cell project. It's just like the historical development. But we've also done surveys and interviews um, with with um, policymakers at the state and district level in a few different states uh, around the country. Um, and one of the things that has 
um, emerged from that data, in particular the interview data, um, is the increasing importance of uh, national consortia in developing and supporting states in developing that infrastructure for e what I'm calling ELL accountability policies, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so we have WIDA, which is a consortia that I believe now has 37 states and the District of Columbia. Um, and then we have ELPA 21 that has seven states. And then the remaining seven states or so aren't part of any consortia. But what this means is that, for example, 37 states in the, in the United States use the same assessments to identify students as English learners and to reclassify them. Mm, mm -hmm. Now, states are responsible for determining the cutoff scores for that. So WIDA or ELPA 21 wouldn't tell states, these are the criteria that you have to use to determine how to reclassify students. But, what that, but the fact that these states are using the same assessment means that if I live in Pennsylvania, which is a WIDA state, and then I move to um, New York, which is also a WIDA state, um, the same assessment is being used to track my development. Whether the criteria for, for reclassification are the same or not mm -hmm. isn't really relevant if you're like, okay, so now I can use the same test to see where I think this student is. And so what's interesting to me in particular about that is that so much of the move um, with ESSA um, has been away from centralization. Like there's kind of been this visceral political reaction against the common core standards, mm. um, which people saw as kind of like federal intrusion or kind of centralization of standards that seemed very antithetical to the local control that has typically characterized the U.S. educational system. Mm. Um, but ELL accountability policies has moved in the opposite direction, um, where we have gotten to the point where most states are using the same uh, ELP standards um, the same assessments, and that has been relatively non-controversial. Um, and so I'm wondering what are the differences there, um, and I think part of the difference is that WIDA and ELPA 21 don't have power to uh, provide uh, reward or sanctions, right? They can't punish schools for not following policies that they create because they're not the ones creating the policies, right? They're just creating the infrastructure mm -hmm. um, and then providing guidelines that states can use to kind of inform what they're going to do. But it's not this top-down mandate in the ways that many states and districts experienced NCLB. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm just wondering whether that is a possible way forward for thinking about how to support schools in general, uh, helping students to meet the needs of standards in general, right? It's like, how can we develop an infrastructure that is supportive of districts and schools, but not necessarily punitive. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I have a question uh, about the ELL reclassification. Mm -hmm. So in what ways, why should a student seek this? Uh, or, or do you want to, do you know what I mean? Like, what's the advantage of being reclassified as not needing to be uh, identified as an ELL? Um, or what is the disadvantage of of being sort of stuck in this because of resources or because of, you know, low-performing school, um, et cetera? Right, right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that the specific policies vary across states. Um, but I think in general, um, what research has kind of pointed to is that um, 
Students who are officially designated as English language learners oftentimes don't have access to the same courses mm. as students who are not. So they might not mm. have um, equitable access to mm. AP courses or even courses that count towards credit towards graduation. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, so it's a one big of the deal. It's a very big right, deal then. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, so one of the advantages of being reclassified is that you then get access to courses that maybe you wouldn't have access to otherwise. Mm. Now, I mean, of course, disadvantage um, may be that you're then not receiving the extra support. Um, but oftentimes, I think, with students who have been um, in ESL bilingual education, or, or, or I should say students who have been officially designated as English language learners um, for many years, um, and, and the literature typically refers to these students as long-term English language learners, mm-hmm. um, I worry that the problems that they're, uh, that the challenges that they confront in schools really aren't about language in a straightforward way. Um, that they're really about the fact that oftentimes they're in schools that I struggle with a lot of different things mm-hmm. in communities that struggle with a lot of different things and that we really need a broader holistic approach to supporting those students. Um, and I worry that because it's framed as language that oftentimes those students are inappropriately put into ESL classes with mm-hmm. students who are relatively new arrivals to mm-hmm. the United There's States. A big and gap so there. Mm-hmm. And so right, and there are different needs there. So mm-hmm. if a student hasn't been reclassified, that certainly suggests that maybe they're struggling to meet grade level standards and may benefit from extra support to help them to do that. But whether that means putting them in a the class with someone who is in the process of right. actually learning the English yeah. maybe isn't the best approach. And so I think people are starting to think about how to strategically um, target those students. Um, but I think that um, we need to start with what the students can do. And so there's a, a researcher, um, Menica Brooks, who um, has really taken that question seriously and said, okay, so what can long-term English language learners actually do with the English language, with literacy in the English language? And she's found that they actually can do quite a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and that we actually can use those skills as a starting point for helping them to more effectively meet those grade level standards. But oftentimes, just the label itself really obscures the fact they actually are um, quite adept at engaging in English literacy practices that they're being socialized into in their schools, Mm -hmm. um, and that we really could use it as a starting point for supporting those students. Right, right. Uh, Nelson, well, I think we can probably have a three, four-hour podcast. (laughs) There's a lot of um, things to think about and to to discuss, so maybe I will um, ask for a part two uh, later on. Uh, but right now, is there anything that um, you would like to share with our audience about the work that you do, um, future plans? So just that I think it's important for us to be mindful of the histories that have produced um, the questions that we ask today and the mm-hmm. categories that we use today. Um, and so the construct of English language learner um, that suggests that someone needs to meet grade level standards before they can be considered purely, fully English proficient um, is a specific way of understanding the issues of these particular students that comes from a specific history. Um, And 
the ways that we privilege Spanish speaking for white students, but not for mm -hmm. Latino students, similarly comes from a particular history. Um, and that when we look to history to help us to better understand how we've arrived at the ways that we understand the issues today, it maybe will help us to think, well, maybe we don't need to think about these things this way. Um, maybe there actually are other ways of thinking about these things. And maybe when we look to history, we actually find that there were already people during those time periods that mm -hmm. were thinking about things in these other ways. And that maybe we need to reclaim those voices and use them as inspiration for developing new frameworks for understanding these issues. Right, right. Well, uh, Nelson, gracias por esta conversación and for all the work that you do. This uh, this valuable scholarship and, and projects that, that that you're that you're putting forth um, for the benefit of all of us. Um, gracias eh, por este eh, episodio. Eh, ha sido un placer. Gracias. A todos, gracias por escucharnos y recuerden seguirnos en Facebook y de compartir este podcast con otros. Hasta la próxima. Thank you.